This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, and today for Catherine Cruz. As we approach the end of 2021, we're all facing some uncertainties. As you just heard on the news, COVID cases are rising again nationally and locally. Inflation is spiking to its highest point in nearly 40 years, and our local economic recovery continues to be uneven. At the same time, there are positive developments for Hawaii, but for local businesses, the uncertainty makes planning difficult. How to look ahead to 2022 and beyond. We have some perspectives this morning from Paul Kosasa. He's the president and CEO of ABC Stores, a locally owned business that his parents, Sydney and Minnie, started as a drugstore in Kaimuki in 1949. They got married during the war at the Thule Lake internment camp in California, where they were both held. They opened the first ABC store in Waikiki in the mid-1960s. Paul became CEO in 1999. He's seen a lot of twists and turns in the local business world since then. And I started a conversation with him this week with a simple question that's a bit complicated to answer these days. How's business? Business is okay. That, you know, it's sort of a neutral answer. It's not bad, but it's not good either. Um, But 2021, since June, uh, has been a pretty good recovery. Back in August, though, when the governor had made his announcement to the world mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, don't come. Right. Uh, they heeded that message, so it did slow down quite a bit. Um, it's recovered a bit, especially since the restrictions have been lifted in early December. I think that was a positive point. And so visitors are slowly coming back, and locals too, since Locals have to buy things from from us too, and so we're we're fortunate right now that it's okay. Uh, but compared to prior years, twenty nineteen, twenty eighteen, twenty seventeen, uh, you're we're pretty far off from that. Strategically, you're always playing a longer game. When you look at the tourism market here, and it's domestic, it's international as well. What do you see? How do you plan? Uh, it's pretty difficult to plan, and that, that's one of the things that we're working on right now is our budgeting. And it's sort of like whatever playbook we use in the past, we just got to throw it away and start over because this is a new world. We are fortunate that a lot of domestic visitors are, are coming from the U.S. and Canada but we are sorely missing the Asian visitors. As you know and reported, you know, Asian visitors spend more per capita than, than the westbound tourists. And so a lot of businesses that are dependent upon the Asian visitor have suffered or are still suffering. We are very good at balancing the mix between Asian and, and domestic visitors. So the commodities and products that we sell uh, attract both. Mm. And so right now, we just lean more toward the domestic visitors. And that's why we are surviving right now. So when you look at cost of living in Hawaii going higher, again, from a strategic standpoint, how do you plan for the future? You have to do the best that you can. You know, there's a labor shortage, as you mentioned Mm. earlier. So... Our labor costs uh, have gone up, but intentionally too, because you know people have to make a living here in high cost of Hawaii. So we increased our wages for our people, which uh, shrinks our margins even further. Um, we do a little bit more promotions to draw more traffic, so to get our sales up and and consequently our profits. But at the same time, the real estate valuations are going up, too. I think you just have to do more with less. How's your staffing situation, by the way? We lost quite a few people uh, as a result of the pandemic. Many, I think, moved away from Hawaii. We've uh, managed to get most of our employees back, but we are still short maybe... 100 or 200 people to be fully staffed. The situation now, though, is because our our sales are 
volume is still on the softer side. It's not as urgent as, as it was maybe in the summertime. But going forward, as we recover, I do um, anticipate struggles in, in uh, covering our stores. Incidentally, we did close permanently some stores. It's just the pandemic has just really affected everyone's business and our suppliers. So some of our suppliers either sh- are still struggling or they gave up. They just gave up their business. So we're looking for alternatives. So when you accumulate all of that, how do you plan for 2022, 2023? Um, you just keep working harder and hopefully that <laughs> you keep your fingers crossed that uh, things will get better. On staffing, the minimum wage is likely to come back as a discussion point at the legislature this next session. How do you feel about that? Oh, well, it's, it's due uh, to raise the minimum wage. Uh, in fact, my position was that it should have been enacted earlier. Because if we did that, then I think the gradual increases of, of minimum wages is a lot easier to handle rather than a big jump. Maybe this legislative session, you know, they'll try to make up for the, the prior sessions, I think. You mentioned that you raised wages yourself, not because of the law or anything, but because of market forces. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the market. You know, if you need people, then you're going to have to attract them. Younger people, they live, uh, many live paycheck to paycheck, and they need a, a decent income. And benefits are expensive, too. Healthcare, insurance is going up. Gas prices are high, transportation. So <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not alone in this. Yeah, exactly. I think all the businesses are cognizant of, of the fact that uh, it's, 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 a, it's a tightening of, of uh, the market. You know? How are you looking at Hawaii's commercial real estate market right now? I'm optimistic. I, I think it's a little hot still. Uh, anecdotally, I mean, if you start seeing more empty storefronts, landlords will adjust. And uh, and I think they are beginning to realize that. Our locations where we shut down was really dependent on the Asian visitors, the Japanese in particular. Mm-hmm. So those locations are, there's no traffic there. So um, yeah, if there's no traffic, we we close the store. Commercial real estate, I think, is uh, uh, it's probably just needs a reset right now. My opinion, it's still a little bit high, uh, but time will tell if there's further adjustments. What I don't know is foreign investment, whether uh, that may prop up the pricing so that it, it doesn't adjust. Well, we'll see. My optimism is because you know we have some, as you know, some many restaurants had closed, right. but recently many restaurants have reopened, and so I'm optimistic that that's a good sign that there's people that are confident about the market, and the more restaurants that are open, it sends a signal to to the market and the community that hey, we're open for business. Come on, coming down and eat. Come on down and eat the message from local restaurants struggling through this challenging time. But what about Hawaii's future, not just for business, but for all of us? We're going to continue our conversation after the break with Paul Kosasa, president and CEO of ABC Stores. Stay with us. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, providing full-service wealth management on Oahu, Maui, and throughout California. Learn more at thericepartnership.com. On the next Fresh Air, why childcare is the most broken business in America, with high costs for parents and providers. We'll talk with Claire Sutta, a senior writer for Bloomberg Businessweek about her investigation into why childcare costs are so high and how they can be made more affordable. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering experiences for Keiki to Kupuna. Featuring art from around the world set amongst six courtyards, the Homa Cafe and Shop. More at honolulumuseum.org. Welcome back to the conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We're talking with Paul Kosasa, president and CEO of ABC Stores, about Hawaii business, present and future. I asked him about money that's currently being invested in business in Hawaii and whether it makes a difference where that money comes from. Are you seeing foreign money behave differently than Hawaii money, than mainland money? I mean, are those three different buckets? Mm, that's a good question. I've never thought of money as behaving differently. <laughs> <laughs> the people behind the money, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, Hawaii is a victim of its own uh, beauty and success, right? People want to live here. People want to invest here to to a point where, you know, is there too much tourism? Is there over-tourism, which affects our natural resources and beauty. So there has to be a balance. And I think Hawaii Tourism Authority under John DeFries is approaching it in a very logical, sensible way that there is controlled, controlled growth. And I hope he's successful at that because I think he's got some really good ideas to manage the growth. And it prospers everyone. What excites you about ideas of managing that growth of tourism? Or, or what, what policies or approaches do you find interesting, exciting? Well, off the top of my head, I think fees that are charged to certain places like Hanuma Bay, as long as those fees are earmarked for the care and nurturing of the, of the bay and not siphoned off to rail or something. <laughs> I think that's appropriate because we're not alone. I think you go to other visitor destinations around the world, there are surcharges or fees really to maintain the the visitor plan. I'm chair of the Waikiki Business Improvement District Association, and our mission is to make sure Waikiki is clean and safe and have ambassadors that greet our, our visitors and that is funded primarily by the visitor industry by through property tax. How is Waikiki doing these days? I think Waikiki is doing fine. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, you know the hotels are have lower occupancies probably in the forties, fifties, and sixties right now. In a way, it it gives Waikiki a chance to kind of regroup and get cleaned up a little bit better. That's pretty much almost done already, so we're ready for visitors to come back. And and I think it, the, the amount of hotel rooms that we have right now is good. I know there's a couple more projects that are coming up, and I think that Waikiki has the capacity to manage those additional rooms. And really, is getting people back employed again, and hopefully uh, we, we come out of this better and, and higher quality. You have a lot of stores outside Hawaii as well. Is there anything in terms of the stores outside Hawaii that tell you anything either more broadly on your business perspective or about Hawaii and business perspective? Well, we have stores in Las Vegas, and we have stores in Guam and in Saipan. I'll address Guam and Saipan. They're still closed for pretty much for tourism, so they're still suffering as if we were back in 2020. Hmm. Las Vegas, on the other hand, is opened up very quickly earlier and pretty much back to normal. And so Hawaii will probably be a more measured recovery than Las Vegas. Las Vegas is Las Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) And 
I think Hawaii is, is we have to be a little more sensitive to the recovery. And if I think if we, you know, pay attention to it properly, I think we can have a nice um, recovery for everybody. When you look at the future of Hawaii business on a broader scale, what gets you excited and what, if not, keeps you up at night? What concerns you? For businesses, you know, we started off as a mom-and-pop business, and, and we were fortunate and lucky to, to grow. This pandemic had affected a lot of mom-and-pop businesses. Some have closed, but some have remained open. And I think for me, one of the attractive things about Hawaii and visiting Hawaii are the mom-and-pop businesses. So, yes, while I'd like them to shop at ABC stores, I also would like them to enjoy the 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 businesses, the small businesses throughout Oahu and the neighbor islands that have a character and a uh, cultural um, um, a, a cultural uh, feeling of Hawaii. And as long as they survive, I, I think that's great for the economy. Uh, in in contrast, um, I worry about um, certain developments that are big box, uh, and we it's quite evident in on Oahu, <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to mention names, but you know there is a lot of pavement with a lot of parking, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's kind of what uh, Hawaii is about, uh, and so it. I think we have to kind of look at ourselves to see what we want out of our Hawaii. And, you know, small businesses, generally speaking, donate more to, to charity and community. I, this is, I don't have evidence on that, but I think they do because they're in this community and they support nonprofits a lot more. And so because of that, I think we should support our small businesses and visit them, shop with them, eat at their restaurants. They'll remember your name. That's that's what I like. Paul Casasa, President CEO of ABC Stores. Thanks for coming in, Paul. Sure thing. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Christmas in our tropical climate may not evoke the classic holiday images of bundling up in warm clothes with snow everywhere, but we found plenty of unique ways to celebrate. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of an Oahu tradition that started back in 1985. Today, we know it as Honolulu City Lights. It's the outdoor light display on King Street that stretches from the grounds outside Honolulu Hale all the way to the Civic Center. The decorated holiday tree is the centerpiece of the display, but the headliners are the pair of larger-than-life figures known as Shaka Santa and Tutu Mele. The two 20-foot sculptures of Santa and his wife have been part of the festivities for about 30 years. You know them, Santa with a raised shaka over his head and toes dipped in the Honolulu Hale Fountain, his wife dressed in a mu'umu'u with a flower in her hair. They were created by a team put together by the Honolulu Department of Parks and Recreation. One of the team members described them this way. They're done with their work in preparing for the season of giving and are taking time off to relax here in Hawaii, where you can kind of just hang out, go to the beach, get a tan, you know, just hang loose. 
Shaka Sano was the first to arrive in 1989, with Tutu Mele joining him in 1994. But Tutu Mele was not always her name. So for today's Backyard Quiz, what was her original name before it was changed to Tutu Mele in 1998? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. It's been another week of developments concerning the Red Hill fuel tanks here on Oahu. The latest news is a set of test results released by the Department of Health. HBR News Editor Scott Kim spent some time out at the Red Hill area this week and continues to follow this story. Scott, what's the latest about the test results? Well, Bill, the State Department of Health sent over a batch of new results, uh, some of them coming from Iroquois Point specifically the Kapalina Homes Development. Now, this is former Navy land, the old uh, Barbers Point Naval Air Station, uh, but it's been developed for civilian use, but it still uses the Navy's water system. So results from that community, as well as McGrew Point, another military housing area at Pearl Harbor, showed trace levels of petroleum product. Now, the DOH says those results are well below their thresholds for safe drinking water, meaning According to the state, uh, that water is okay, although Mm. that might not be so much comfort to some residents of the areas who've complained that they're experiencing some physical ailments uh, similar to those afflicting others in military housing. So of the 27 samples that were returned, five of them tested positive for oil below the threshold. So according to the DOH and the Navy, that water uh, is okay. Now, among the places where these samples were taken, Iroquois Point Elementary School, the Navy's Halawa Storage Tank, and the Navy's Aiea Halawa Shaft. Now, that's interesting because, of course, that Aiea Halawa Shaft was recently closed by the Navy after Mm -hmm. samples showed a high level of contaminants. The Navy later walked back those statements saying that sample came from another area of the shaft that was not in use. So despite these test results, the State Department of Health is holding firm to its recommendation for people on the Navy's water system that they not use the water for drinking, cooking, and oral hygiene. If they can smell a fuel-like odor, then they should also not use the water for bathing, dishwashing, and laundry as well. As you mentioned, trace uh, elements there, but also the concern about the, the showing the spread of that. Uh, of course, there are uh, test results, more, more sample tests uh, coming still, yes? Absolutely. Uh, the Navy and the DOH are both continuing to test the water. Uh, the Navy says that it's uh, collecting an average of 60 daily samples from points along their distribution system. That is, that is being tested at a Navy-operated laboratory here at Pearl Harbor, but they're also taking daily water samples through a contractor, and those samples are being sent to the mainland for more stringent testing. And that takes a little time on the turnaround. Red Hill also dominating special session of uh, Honolulu City Council yesterday. What were some of the highlights there? Well, the Honolulu City Council essentially added its voice to the chorus of those calling for the closing down of the Red Hill uh, fuel facility. Uh, It passed a resolution unanimously that will be sent to President Joe Biden, among others, that says uh, you need to immediately close remove the fuel and uh, remove the tanks uh, of, at Red Hill, which the Navy has already said that's, that's not going to happen, uh, removing the tanks, no matter what happens to the fuel. Uh, it's just too cost prohibitive. Uh, the council also approved on first reading Bill 48. Now, that would require a city permit for any entity seeking to operate storage tanks holding more than 100,000 gallons. So, obviously, this would target 
something like Red Hill because each tank at Red Hill can hold about 12.5 million gallons of fuel. So this is a way the city council said for it to get some skin in the game. Uh, there were some comments, some you know, directed at other agencies, other government uh, figures for not stepping to the fore and dealing with this previously, and the council uh, felt like it had to step in now and, and make its voice heard. Another aspect of the bill is that it requires the applicant to demonstrate that the tank will not leak under any circumstances. There was a lot of emotion at the meeting uh, from those testifying. They had three dozen people giving oral testimony, over a thousand pages of uh, written testimony, and uh, even some of the council members uh, were very emotional when they spoke about this issue. Here's an exchange between Radiant Cordero and Tommy Waters, who both co-wrote the bill. Great power lies within that valley, but a lot of it has been desecrated because of what has happened to the water in Puloa. Sorry. Sorry. And that's only just an example of what continues to happen to our water, I mean, to our island and, our, and the people and our neighbors that we have here. And sorry, I'm going to... No, we understand. This issue is... Thank you. It, it is emotional. Yeah. It really is. You don't have water. We cannot live. And that's what I feel from what you're saying here. It's that important. So it's okay. And, Bill, another major development uh, came about last night when it was announced that a hearing on the state's emergency order to force the Navy to remove the fuel from Red Hill will be held this coming Monday, beginning at 8 a.m. Now, of course, the Navy is contesting this order, which would also require that it install a water filtration system to protect the aquifer, that they get an assessment of the integrity of the facility and work on fixing the problem. Lots to still be coming on this uh, on this story, and... HPR News Editor Scott Kim following the latest on these twists and turns, the continuing story of Red Hill. Thanks, Scott. Oh, you're more than welcome. Appreciate it. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, providing palliative, hospice, and bereavement care, now hiring RNs, CNAs, and other health care positions. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. Have you ever managed a brand? Crafted marketing plans that are integrated, strategic, and forward-thinking? Written copy that moved people to action? HPR is seeking a senior-level marketing and communications professional to support the station's diverse initiatives. The Director of Marketing and Communications also leads a team of digital and multimedia producers. For more details on how to apply, head to hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Application deadline, January 7th. Oahu Transit Services Network is slowly coming back online after a cyber attack forced it to shut down its mobile system a week ago. The conversation's Savannah Harriman Pote sat down with Roger Morton, the Director of Transportation Services for Honolulu, to see what we've learned about the attack and how the city can protect itself in the future. Well, OTS has uh, taken a process to begin to, uh, to clean uh, all of their workstations and servers and domain controllers uh, and other things that are are uh, related to that, and they have slowly uh, brought up parts of their internal OTS network uh, that would support things like the Handy Van Reservation Service and the uh, scheduling applications and some business applications like payroll. However. They have still. They are still isolated as an internal network, and they're not connected to other parts of the internet or to other networks. Okay. And what does that translate to in terms of services for writers? Well, there are there are a couple of things. Uh, our online services uh, are not available to our customers. Those include our uh, Where's My Bus type applications like Kea or Dabas or Transit, uh, and they include similar applications for HandyVan, which we call EVA or Estimated Van Arrival System that our users use so that they know 
approximately when the vans will be coming to pick them up. Those services are not available. Uh, in our holo card services, we ask the public to continue to tap their holo cards. We know that we are at least receiving some of them in a sort of a store and forward environment. They're not connected online to our servers at this point because we, we have purposely not reconnected uh, to the internet. But we, uh, we're working through those types of issues and trying to do it as expeditiously as we can, but with all of the, the prudent steps that we need to take with cybersecurity and with the advice of, of both local and federal uh, advisors. And what kind of questions or concerns have you been primarily fielding from writers, people who have had difficulty getting to appointments, picking up prescriptions, that kind of thing? Well, those, I think, were, uh, are not an issue anymore. Uh, we are running our handy van service. We are taking all customers. We're taking all reservations. What we're doing uh, is that we, we're following a system that we used until about two years ago where we, we do print a, a manifest for the drivers that they shows them what their day's work is, and we modify that with voice radio uh, throughout the day with the drivers. That is going back to a system where we used to use a mobile data terminal in the last two years to show that same information in the vehicle, and that service is shut down. So we're back to a printed manifest, and radio tra radio dispatching. Mm. And what's the timeline for that mobile system to be back online and for your systems to be fully functional? Well, you know, I don't have an exact timeline, uh, but, uh, we're, but we are talking in terms of hours and days rather than weeks on, and months. Mm. Uh, and that's dependent upon us going through uh, with our, our partners, our technology partners, uh, our folks from city and county, and even some folks from law enforcement who are walking us through that and making sure that, that we are following protocols that have, you know, that have been sent out by CISA and other agencies that talk to what to look for for recent attacks in other localities. That's what we're going through right now. We're looking for IP addresses that are known to have been used. We're looking for types of aliases, quite, quite technical, really, but we're following the most recent directives that have been issued by, uh, by, by CISA. And just to clarify, the work that you're doing with the partners you just listed, is that cleanup for the last cyber attack, or are you also working to proactively recognize and address other vulnerabilities that someone might use in a future attack? Uh, both. CISA is the uh, computer, so the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, and they have uh, consulted with our partners at OTS, both from a best practices point of view going forward, and also from a forensic investigation of, of trying to look for signatures and to make sure that, uh, that our folks, our technical folks, uh, look in all the right places and remove any, you know, continuing infection of the of the servers and the information. So, it's it's both going forward with some uh, best practice suggestions going forward. Uh, you, you know, that can be for using the most up to date malware, for example. It could be some physical separations of some of the servers, uh, and those types of of uh, technical things that that frankly are not, uh, you know, something that I'm very familiar with at all. Uh, but uh, it is both that. And in addition, uh, our private sector partners like Cisco has been consulting with us. It is mostly done in an abundance of caution to make sure that as we do restore these systems and connect them to the Internet and to other networks, that we're not sharing uh, or we're not either going to reinfect ourselves or to uh, reinfect other networks. Hmm. And for our listeners, what do we know at this point about the origin and the intention of the attack? You know, uh, that's a question that, uh, that law enforcement uh, has uh, looked at. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we our, our local law enforcement, FBI and uh, Secret Service, ha have been looking at this particular intrusion in terms of national issues of uh, what's happened in, in other, other jurisdictions. Uh, and it's an ongoing investigation for which I... I, I don't really have any really good background information on, on where it came from and that. But I do know that, that the investigation uh, is 
uh, not just centered in Hawaii, but it's centered in other uh, jurisdictions and other FBI field offices as well. Hmm. Now, Roger, when you got news of the cyber attack, did you feel like, all right, today's the day DTS understands that we might be a target and here are our protocols? Or did you feel like the rug had just been pulled out from under you? Well, I took a deep breath for sure. Uh, as, as the enormity of the uh, issue sort of dawned on me, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the, the, the systems that OTS operates. And so I, I knew that this was a, a serious, serious disruption. I think that, that this is a, a wake-up call for us at the city and for at LTS. And I think it's also a wake-up call for all businesses in America that, uh, you know, that, that we are being targeted in, a, in an increasingly, uh, you know, volatile way by entities around the world. It's large companies. It's, it's uh, Microsoft, Amazon. It's, it's all of those large entities as well as companies that utilize those services. So I think it's uh, all of country in, really, to try to combat this. And certainly it has uh, made me a much more, uh, I understand much more what the threat is to not just to the city and OTS, but to the entire country. Mm. On that note, DTS was one of three city agencies, the other two being Board of Water Supply and Emergency Medical Services, that was impacted by a cyber attack last week alone. Do you think that the city's infrastructure is ready to handle these 21st century threats? Well, I think that there's no uh, evidence that any of our city servers were impacted by either the OTS uh, event uh, or the the events that uh, had to do with a third-party cloud provider, Kronos, that two of our agencies just happened to use. Uh, there's been no evidence that uh, that that that, uh, that there's been any uh, intrusion to the city systems. Are the city systems vulnerable? Of course they are. Uh, are they, uh, our city, you know, the city folks have a fairly dedicated, both a cybersecurity uh, and other network folks that look over a big system. So uh, I can say that the city systems uh, are well protected, but that uh, the threat is real and uh, that all, even employees, for example, the, the suspect uh, in, in, instance in this is probably an email that was opened uh, with an attachment uh, that was the root of, uh, of an infection. And so I know our employees at the city, uh, particularly after this event, have been increasingly been told to use good hygiene, that's computer hygiene in the way they open up emails, the way they transfer files, uh, the way they access the, the, the networks remotely. All of those are vulnerabilities. Roger Morton, Director of Transportation Services for Honolulu, talking with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about the recent cyber attack on the city's transit system. The Hawaii Department of Education marked National Computer Science Education Week this month by offering several sessions for students aimed at increasing awareness of the kinds of careers possible in the computer science field. Jobs like web developer and digital designer are projected to grow 13 percent between 2020 and 2030, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's faster than the average for all occupations. One of the groups that participated in the DOE's National Computer Science Education Week is Technology Outreach Hawaii, or TORCH. TORCH is determined to keep the education rolling. The group is celebrating its first anniversary this month. It was formed last year by a collective of college students focused on increasing the digital literacy of Hawaii's youth. The conversation's Russell Subiono sat down with its chief information officer, Timothy Huo, to learn more about what his group is doing to help inspire the next generation of computer scientists. The pandemic has impacted our lives in many ways. We've learned many lessons about things like food security, trusting information, and social interaction. 
What does the pandemic reveal to us about technology education and access across our islands? Yeah, I think it revealed that just having early education, especially in our youth, is like very important. Especially if you're like doing a career in computer science or any fields in STEM, like engineering, math, science. Even if you don't plan on pursuing those careers, having knowledge of coding, like such as building a website, for example, can be very useful whenever you're like trying to start a business, organization, or clubs. And yeah, in the long run, it gives you more freedom as well as saves you time and even money. Yeah, because technology is such an integrated part of our lives now. There's a website for everything. There's social media and there's all kinds of ways where technology is integrated into our lives. So it sounds like your organization, one of its focuses helping our youth become more adept at using technology, more aware. Can you talk a little bit more about what level of competency your organization feels like our youth should have today? Yeah, so just a quick summary of our organization. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. And yeah, our goal is to you know, promote technology education, mentorship, and service across Hawaii. And we're currently trying to collaborate with other organizations to push that vision. And as mentioned before, we believe that having early education, especially during like 6th to 12th grade, is very important. And nowadays, as you mentioned, technology is like a part of our lives, right? And having that early education is very important. So, you know, we believe that, you know, providing these programs that we do and even like resources around Hawaii, very important for the younger generation to know about that and to learn more about, you know, coding, even if they might not seem interested at first, right? Just to see how it feels and maybe have a career in computer science or just any fields in STEM. Why is the sixth grade through 12th grade range, why is that a target range? What's so important about those years? I think during those years, start when you like start developing and like, especially in your classes like math, science, et cetera. And it's good to get started because especially that young in sixth grade, because it's during that time where when we are like coding, for example, it's important to not bring up that coding is mainly just looking at a computer. It's more like problem solving and writing aspects that, you know, might not be thought of when you think about coding and computer science. So like by offering it to sixth graders, to seventh, eighth, et cetera, it's more willing and more appealing to them as well. And then when they transition into like college and their career, they have a full understanding of what computer science is. Your organization, Technology Outreach Hawaii, you guys go by Torch. Yeah. It was started in December of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, and it's celebrating its first anniversary this month. What brought about the creation of your organization? Our organization, all of us are like either in college or like grad students. So, you know, during college, we understood like yeah, early education is very important. And many of us are very passionate in, you know, promoting technology education. And throughout the years, we are able to create programs. Throughout this year, we have programs like IC Spark that is a free web development course that teaches 6th to 12th graders this web development for like 14 weeks. And we also have another program called JHATS, and that's targeting like medical students and incorporating, you know, what they do as well with coding and hopefully, you know, be able to create something pretty amazing. It sounds like you guys felt like the way that you grew up with technology and, and the way that your passion for technology was fostered was a good way to create a program or, or create an organization to be able to offer that to other youth as well. Yeah. If you could share maybe some of your specific stories or maybe some from some of the other people involved with creating the organization, what were some of the things that you experienced as a young person that kind of continued to light the fire as you were growing older? I think I first got interested in like computer science when like during like high school where I had the opportunity to learn how to code in a like a beginner friendly environment and I felt that's very important, especially when I grew older and like into college. It was a really good environment because there wasn't a lot of pressure for me to get everything right away, like understand everything. And I had like great teachers and even other students to help build that foundation into coding. And, you know, when transitioning into college, it provided like a very helpful foundation and key resource for me to do well. 
I'm glad that your organization is providing a mentorship in a way for, for some of our youth. How do you see technology and the use of the internet becoming more integrated in our everyday lives and jobs in the future? What do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I see that technology coding is going to be in like every single industry probably. And even now you see like it's part of our lives, right? Just looking on websites online, going on our phones right now. It's a huge part of our lives and moving on into the future is going to be more than that. It's amazing to see what we can do. Really what I'm trying to get at is, can you foresee anything specific in the future that will impact our lives? I mean, if if we look back in the past, computers, the internet, phones, all of these things came out in a progression. And with every new progression, it became a normal part of our lives. So I'm trying to see, you know, like what's, what's the next piece of technology that becomes integrated in our lives? I think one thing during the pandemic that we realized that we can like work from home, like via Zoom, and we don't really have to technically leave the house to, you know, go to school, go to work. And in terms of like new technology, you can see that there's like 3D environments, like even in gaming, where players can interact with each other. And I think that could be the future. You see like augmentation reality headsets, like VR, which is pretty cool. And I think going forward, there's a lot you can do with it. So a student's classroom could potentially be in the internet with students at their laptop, maybe wearing VR goggles and participating in a classroom setting that way. You think that's, yeah. that could be down the road? Yeah, I think that could be a possible future. Yeah. To help prepare for that future, are there any programs or classes your organization will be offering for our youth to be skilled technology users, creators, and leaders of change? Yeah, I think one of the programs that I mentioned before as well was IC Spark. It is a coding program, a free coding program. And actually, next spring, we have a web development course. So for 6 to 12 graders, they'll just learn the basics of web development, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And then at the end, they can create like their own personal projects. So I had students like create their own blogs, their like checklists, and even like simple games like tic-tac-toe, which is pretty amazing. Web development is like only one section in computer science, but it's a really good topic to get started in. It's very like beginner friendly and there's a lot of tutorials and boot camps online already. And like just knowing how to code from there, you can like explore what else computer science has. Like you can create video games, uh, even transition into app development. So there's like a lot you can do with just knowing how to code. And we plan to offer like other courses in the future, either like machine learning, we're thinking, or software design. So yeah, there's like a lot of endless possibilities out there and even other resources online and even in the public in Hawaii. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That was Technology Outreach Hawaii's Timothy Huo talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. For more information on how your student can participate in Torch's programs, check out the links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Hey there, it's DJ Mr. Nick. You may know me from Bridging the Gap, the eclectic music show that airs weekdays from 10 p.m. to midnight on HPR One. Oh, you're asleep by then, you say? Too late for you? Well, not to worry. My show and many other HPR music programs can be streamed on demand whenever you want, no matter your bedtime. For the full list, head to our website. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked if you knew the original name given to Tutu Mele, the 20-foot sculpture that sits next to that other 20-foot figure, Shaka Santa, during the city's Honolulu City Lights celebration every December. The event was started in 1985 by then-Mayor Frank Fossey, with a 50-foot lighted tree on the main lawn outside Honolulu Hale and light displays on the trees and buildings from downtown to the Civic Center. Three years later, the towering two-ton Shaka Santa was introduced to the event. The Honolulu Department of Parks and Recreation first had the idea for him 
but it was a small crew with experience in constructing large-scale installations that actually carved the massive character out of styrofoam in an old warehouse in the Campbell Industrial Park. He was later coated with cement, polymer, and fiberglass adhesive to withstand the elements while on display. Five years later, the crew had the idea for Tutu Mele. They used hot wires and reciprocating saws to make the large sculpting cuts and plastic box knives for the detail work. She made her Honolulu City Lights debut in 1994, but not as Tutu Mele. That name came in four years later. She was first known as Mele Claus or Mrs. Claus. Either answer would have worked for today's backyard quiz, but we had no winner today. If you have a quiz to share, we would love to hear from you. You can write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's the program for today. Up tomorrow, a Hanaho Aloha Friday conversation. We revisit two great interviews from earlier this year. Noe Tanigawa sat down with members of the Peter Moon Band and Robert Casimero. Give us some feedback. Got questions? Anything you may have heard of on our air? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Aloha. Aloha.